Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And while you're turning, I am going to uh, start the live stream. We're going to read today from Acts chapter 19 as we continue this uh, series I've been doing, uh, The Church as God's Agent of Disruption. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, uh, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with water, with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name, oops, excuse me, John baptized, let me try that again, woo. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, uh, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, back a number of years ago, it's in my first church, and uh, it's a small town in uh, the middle of the United States. And uh, a, a member of the church, or somebody who was coming to the church, told me a story uh, this, this woman was in, just having a conversation with another woman in the town, in the community. And uh, this other woman didn't know that she went to our church. It was a Presbyterian church. She didn't know that uh, this woman went to our church. And so she said to this woman, she said, Have you heard about the Presbyterian church? And the woman decided to play along and she said, No. What, what, what is it? The woman said, 
there are strange things happening there at that church. Really? Yeah. People are changing. It must be some kind of a cult. So, you know, just in case you're worried that I am a cult leader, uh, I am, uh, clearly. You know, uh, uh, it it was really, really quite funny, because what do you expect? You know, if the presence of God is in a place, people are going to change. People's lives will be transformed. And if they're not transformed, you really have to question whether God is there. But it just, it's just one in, in a myriad number of ways that people who are not Christians, who are outside the church of Jesus Christ, get Christianity wrong. Uh, another common misperception is that Christianity is all about burning books uh, and that uh, real Christians want to burn books. And part of that comes out of this uh, passage from Acts 19. Uh, notice the people were burning their own books. You know, this is not a situation where Paul was running into a library uh, and taking out all the books and burning the, the books or burning the library. It's not Fahrenheit 451, uh, the Ray Bradbury science fiction story. Uh, you know, yes, you know, from time to time throughout history, some Christians have done some pretty silly things. We know that. Uh, but the truth of Christianity is that wherever the body of Christ is strong, wherever Christians are getting together as the authentic church of Jesus Christ, things happen. Things get disrupted. Things tend to change. People tend to change. Now, and we see that uh, throughout history, and we certainly see that in this passage here from Ephesians that we read here in uh, this passage from the book of Acts about uh, what happened to the Ephesians and Ephesus. I, I, I keep getting that mixed up in my head. So if I, if I call this Ephesians several times, please forgive me. It's the book of Acts, uh, just in case you were wondering. It's the book of Acts. So I think we want to take a look at this passage because this passage tells us a lot about how the church became disruptive in Ephesus. It tells us also how the church was disruptive. You know, what, what, uh, you know, what got disrupted. Uh, and the passage tells us uh, how the church could understand or could know that it was disruptive. You know, what evidence was there that the church was being disruptive. Now, when we're talking about the church as God's agent of disruption, remember we're saying here, we're talking about disruption in a positive sense. We're not talking about terrorism. We're not talking about blowing things up. Uh, we're not talking about murdering people. Uh, we're talking about disrupting the kingdom of darkness so that the kingdom of God's dear son invades and many thousands of people go into the kingdom of God. I mean, that's our desire. That's the purpose of being disruptive. And we must always remember that is our purpose uh, because it reminds us one that we cannot capitulate to the way things are in the world, uh, but also it reminds us that we cannot just get comfortable, but we need to keep pressing forward until God has achieved everything he wants to do. So let's look at how the church became disruptive uh, in Ephesus. The first thing we see here is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Uh, we need to understand there, there's a, a real tendency amongst a lot of Christians to say, well, you know, you, you get saved and then the, the baptism or the infilling of the Holy Spirit is something that's separate from your salvation and it's not really important. That's a lie. We see throughout the, the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to fulfill the mission that God has given us. Without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and by the way, the repeated infilling of the Holy Spirit, because we all leak because of our sinfulness, without the infilling and the re-infilling of the Holy Spirit, time after time after time, we will never be disruptive as the church of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely necessary. Now, another misconception about the infilling of the Holy Spirit is that it's primarily an individualistic experience. When you look at the book of Acts, what you see is that the book of Acts tells us time and again that the infilling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens to groups of people, not primarily individuals. There have been too many people uh, in the churches today who think of, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit because they want to have some kind of, ooh, mysterious, wonderful uh, feeling of the Holy Spirit, which nothing wrong about that, by the way. But that is not the purpose of being baptized, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is an after effect of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And some people might have a mystical, uh, fulfilling experience when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but some people don't feel anything. I remember praying for a woman about 25 years ago uh, in uh, some special services in the church at the time, uh, and we were praying for people to be filled with the Spirit and be able to evangelize. Uh, and I told people, I said, you know, some, maybe nothing will happen to you, but understand by faith you're being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the following week, this woman testified. She said, you know, Rod, when you prayed for me, I didn't feel anything. I was disappointed. I didn't think anything happened. And then on Wednesday, I was with my, my son, I think it was, at the park. And I was sitting on the park bench. And within an hour, I had three people come sit next to me and ask me about Jesus. And I was able to share with each one of them confidently. We need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It, we need it together as the church, as a group of Christians, not just as individual Christians, so that we can do what God tells us to do. And these people, they showed evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You are not filled with the Holy Spirit unless there's some evidence of being filled. Uh, in their case, the evidence was speaking in tongues or prophesying, but there could be other evidences of being filled. Just as I said, that woman who received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, she was able to evangelize. She was able to share her faith boldly. The point is, biblically, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is an outcome. You will know it because there is a consequence to it. Uh, and sometimes that's speaking in tongues and sometimes that's prophesying. And we need to be, be careful. Because there are two very big errors that are in the body of Christ today. One is that 
speaking in tongues isn't important. You know, it's, uh, it's not important at all. You know, I, I don't need to speak in tongues. I don't want to speak in tongues. I can, I can refuse to speak in tongues, uh, and it's okay. You know, the other, the other error is to say, well, the only evidence of the Holy Spirit filling you up is speaking in tongues. Neither of those approaches are biblical. Now, last I checked, I tried to give, if I tried to give somebody a gift and they refuse that gift, it feels a bit insulting. You know, and if, if I'm going to give someone a gift, or, or many times in the past, I've had people give me gifts. And I won't, uh, I'll think of maybe 30 years ago when I wasn't around here, uh, I've had people give me gifts that I didn't really want. Now, what, what, how would they have felt if somebody comes up and they give me a gift and I say, you know, I don't really want this gift. You know, uh, here, just go ahead and take it back, you know, get your money back. That's insulting, isn't it? How do you think it is to God if God wants to give us a gift? And we, ah, no, you know, speaking in tongues, that's a little too weird for me. I'm not saying that everybody has to speak in tongues. Paul's clear, not everybody will speak in tongues, but we must be careful not to refuse the gifts that God gives us. And let the Spirit give us the gifts he will, because unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we cannot be disruptive. And we see that in Ephesus. Now, the next thing we see in Ephesus is that they learned about the kingdom of God. Not only, and remember, when we talk in the Bible about learning something, learning is demonstrated by doing. So if you say, yeah, I, I, learned, I learned how to study the Bible 30 years ago. Well, when was the last time you picked it up? Oh, 30 years ago. You didn't learn how to study the Bible. So learning in the Bible always results in some kind of doing. It doesn't always result in the same doing, but it always results in doing. So they learned about the kingdom of God. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months, this is verse 8, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Then he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now Paul, just like Jesus, focused his teaching on the kingdom of God. His teaching was all about the loving rulership of God that had broken into the world through Jesus Christ, who is the king, bringing salvation to all who would enter that kingdom, bringing new life to all who would enter that kingdom, bringing empowerment to live a, a new life boldly for God to everybody who is part of that kingdom. And the kingdom of God teaching was that one day the rulership of God would be over all the earth. And we needed to prepare. And so Paul was teaching about that. He was preaching about that. He was declaring that Jesus Christ is the king. That Jesus Christ as his rulership was over every human rulership, including that of Caesar's. And these were bold statements that Paul was making. Now it's interesting that the context that this is happening, and we often miss this. Uh, the passage, what it's describing here, when Paul moves to the hall of Tyrannus, it, it's describing something like a training school. Back in those days, what would happen is that many people would get up, uh, most people would work from sunrise to sunset. 
Uh, so people would get up at sunrise, sometimes starting work about 7 a.m. Uh, in the morning, and then they would work until 11 or 12 when the day got hot, and then they would take two to three hours off in the middle of the day, and then they would go back to work. I mean, I think many people in Spain follow the biblical pattern there. It's biblical people, those uh, Spaniards there. Just saying that because Federico's here. Uh, and it's true. So, uh, you know, two things that go together. Uh, and so what would happen is that many schools, many professional schools, would also do their training from 7 a.m. till 11 a.m. Uh, and then some people would be released to work in the afternoons. Or if you're in school full time, you'd come back in the afternoons. But what Paul was most likely doing here he was taking over the hall at 11 o'clock when the, the professional school probably started. And so he would teach for two to three hours in the middle of the day, uh, sometimes a bit longer, uh, and then go on further into the afternoon. So there would be some people who would come off from work, who would be there, who would give up their leisure time, give up their lunch break in order to study. Uh, and then there were a few that were extra committed disciples, maybe being trained for leadership, that would continue on into the afternoon to the close of day. And so this became uh, seemingly uh, really developed a, a positive reputation. It, was, it required a serious commitment of time from the students. Uh, and if you had a special hall like this for your meetings, it conferred a, a sense of status in the community. It showed the community this is something very important. Now, Paul would do this in the school, but remember, in Ephesus, they also met in house churches, uh, which would meet uh, on the weekends, uh, most of the time on a Sunday, uh, most of the time as well in the evenings, because Sunday wasn't the day off as it is for many people today. Uh, so it would meet in the evenings. So Paul would still meet with various house churches uh, during the week in the evenings, but he would do his school during the day. And so there was this twofold dynamic of training going on during the day and ministry going on and fellowship building and all the things that churches were supposed to do in the evenings. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and so these two activities of Paul, they would complement one another. Uh, and it enabled the gospel to spread. By the way, just as a side note here, I think that this is part of God's pattern that he's going to establish for City Temple. When we get into our new building, I think this is part of the future vision for City Temple. Uh, that, uh, yeah, we, we may have a Sunday worship like this, but we're going to have a lot more worship in homes. And we're going to be raising up leaders. And this is going to be a training center uh, for a lot of people. I think that that's one of the things that the Lord may be doing uh, as we go along. So uh, uh, kind of exciting. So the, the third way, the third way they became disruptive is they sought and experienced miracles. They went after miracles. And God, this is verse uh, 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And we need to understand, teaching and miracles go together in the Bible. Jesus taught, and he healed the sick. He taught, and he cast out demons. And there's a pattern there. Uh, and we need to see that pattern 
today. I mean, we need to long for that pattern, seek out that pattern today because we're not seeing it. Now, this doesn't mean that miracles are happening every minute of every day. Understand, you know, in the Bible, it condenses our experience into a, a briefer period of time. But there were enough miracles and things happening that people were taking notice. Diseases were leaving people. Evil spirits were leaving people. Uh, and this was not only done by Paul. I mean, the people would at first take these handkerchiefs and stuff out that Paul had touched. But I believe that they continued to pray and seek miracles on their own even after Paul left. There's evidence that that's why the church continued to expand and grow all the way out through the first hundred years of church history. They saw teaching and miracles going hand in hand. And this is something that wasn't being duplicated by the non-Christians. I love this story about the seven sons of Sceva. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Uh, never do that, by the way. It's, it's kind of foolish. Uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now this is absolutely hilarious. You know, you are allowed to laugh at the Bible, because there's a lot of things that are funny in the Bible, and this is very, very funny. Uh, we, we don't often pick up on how hilarious it is. But oftentimes, see, what would happen is that non-Christian exorcists, when they were, were casting out spirits, they would call upon a higher spirit to cast out a lower spirit. And that, that's how it worked back then. You know, so, so these seven sons of Sceva, they were thinking, okay, you know, this Jesus must be a higher spirit than the demon that's in than this other guy. Now, the other thing that they would do, which I found very interesting as I researched this, they would try to name the demon, thinking that if they found the demon's name, then they would have power over the demon. By the way, we don't do this as Christians. I know some Christians that do do this, but it actually has more attuned in, 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 in line with paganism than it does with biblical Christianity. You know, so that's what they're doing. You know, so they're, they're naming names and, uh, and trying to call on this higher spirit. And the other thing to note is that one of the biggest insults you can give to any person in that day was to, not, to deny that you know them. You know, so if I say, well, I don't know who this guy is. I mean, that's a big insult. So here, here's the demon saying, hey, you know, I know Paul, I know Jesus, but <laughs> I don't know you. And it kind of, you know, it's like thumb and nose at him and then jumps on him and kicks him out. Uh, and okay, it, it's very funny. It's very funny. Uh, so these miracles, though, that were going on, they were very clear. They were evident. They were not hidden. Uh, so the fourth thing that was happening that they were openly dealing with their sinful practices and the ways they had capitulated to the world around them. They were doing this very openly. Uh, it starts with verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's one day's wage. A piece of silver was one day's wage. So the value was 50,000 days worth of labor. That's a lot. That's a lot. I can't even calculate how many years that would be. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, rituals, curses, amulets, those kinds of practices, actually in first generation Christians, it's very common that those who have done that in the past will continue doing it. Uh, That happens even today. Uh, It happens even today uh, where where people will will go to the shaman or the witch doctor uh, that they used to follow to get a blessing so that they can be better in the church. Uh, I know a story of two pastors who were up for a promotion uh, and and one pastor decided to go to the shaman to get a blessing in order to get the promotion. Uh, And, you know, it's it's just not the done thing. Uh, But that's what they were doing. And so suddenly they were convicted of this and then they confessed that this was sin. And when they confessed that they were doing it, that is renouncing it. They were saying, we're not going to do this anymore. And when they divulged these curses and these magic spells, we need to understand that this would openly negate these practices and disempower them in their lives. So that's why the divulging was important. Because by divulging it, they were saying, this is no longer has power in my life. Because the power came from the secrecy. And then they openly severed themselves from the practices by burning their books. Uh, Burning objects to repudiate them has a real long history. It's been done in the church, outside the church, uh, in many, many different religions. So the point is here that at great personal sacrifice to themselves, they couldn't redeem these books. You know, it's not like, oh man, I hate to burn this book. I'm going to put it in the local library. You know, you wouldn't do that. It's a demonic thing. You know, so they were clearly severing this off from their lives. They were saying, we are not going to capitulate to the world around us, to the environment around us. We are going to live solely for Jesus. And the final thing that they did uh, is that they became mission minded and they sent out people. We see this uh, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having uh, sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So here, Paul in this environment, and it talks about Paul, but remember the church would have been involved with this as well. Just like the the church in uh, in Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas, uh, they would have been involved in this whole process of thinking and praying and deliberating. So notice how out of this environment, Paul is thinking in terms of missions, how am I going to spread the gospel further? And Paul goes on to send out people into missions. And that's a disruptive kind of thing to do. So in these five ways, the church uh, was being disruptive. It was being God's agent for disruption in Ephesus, which was a major city in that day. Uh, And specifically, you can see the disruption occurring in a number of different ways. This is how the church disrupted Ephesus. They disrupted the lives of those who followed Jesus. 
You know, here in the first place, you got some, a group of guys that, you know, they kind of knew about Jesus. They've been baptized into John, uh, but they knew about Jesus, but they hadn't really done anything about Jesus. And, and they're, they're just relaxing in that reality. And all of a sudden it's like, no, you can't. You've got to live in a different way. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to do something about your faith. You can't just say you believe. You can't just say you're a disciple. You need to do something about your faith. You need to do something as a disciple. Uh, and so, uh, and by doing that, they disrupted their relationships. I mean, a bunch of people left the synagogue. They left those relationships to set up new, new relationships. And also the things that they did in their own wealth was disrupted as they burned their books, as they totally changed their lifestyle. It was disruptive first and foremost for the Christians. And frankly, if the church doesn't disrupt us personally, We can never expect the church to disrupt the world around us. And I know you guys, and I know in most of your lives, I know ways that the kingdom of God has disrupted your life, and I praise God for that. And I praise God that you haven't hardened your hearts, but you've continued with the Lord. They also, number two, they disrupted religious people. Uh, Some became, this is verse uh, verse 9, Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Uh, So these these religious people were disrupted. And if you want to know how to identify religious people, you see three clear ways here. One, they're stubborn. Religious people think they know it all and they're stubborn in it. Uh, The second, they will continue in their unbelief. Even when pressed with the truth, even when presented the truth, they will refuse to believe. And third, ultimately, religious people will always speak against Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. I've seen this in denominations. I've experienced this personally. But I guarantee you, religious spirit, religious people, excuse me, will always speak badly of Christians who are living by the Holy Spirit, always, key way. They also disrupted unrighteous business. Notice it wasn't just in the walls of the church. The the way lives were changing, people were changing their business practices. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, This is verse 23. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen uh, in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. The church, when it's living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, will always challenge vested economic interests. We saw last week about how many economists think that the, the solution for our economy is for people to be selfish and spend, spend, spend. But we know that that is not the solution for our economy. And as Christians, we need to stand up and say, no, 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 that is not the solution. It is time for us to get rid of the unrighteous spend, spend, spend mentality and develop an economy based on producing and blessing and lifting people up in justice and righteousness according to God. And when you start taking those stands, people get upset with you. We should challenge the consumerism 
of today's economy, and we should especially challenge consumerism when it manifests itself in the body of Christ, in the church. Because a church that has capitulated to the spirit of the world will never disrupt the spirit of the world. And that's exactly what they disrupted. They also disrupted idolatry. Uh, going on with uh, Demetrius, he kept saying, and there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Now they challenged this idolatry. And to understand this, we need to understand how the temple of Artemis functioned in that day. I mean, normally when we think of idolatry, we think of, you know, a temple set up and it's got a carved image in there and that kind of thing. And certainly there was that in Ephesus. But the cult of Artemis functioned like the cultural religion of the day. It was the, the common belief of the people in Ephesus. So the values of the temple of Artemis... Uh, the values that, you know, which there were some good values there, protecting families uh, and the like. There were good values, but the values of Artemis became the values of Ephesus. It's like a, friends of ours in Croatia you know, have often said that, you know, really the culture of Croatia is Roman Catholic. And that's true. Many people who are not really surrendered to Jesus Christ will identify as Roman Catholic. Not because they have any intention of going to the Roman Catholic Church, but because to be Croatian is to be Catholic. Just like to be Serbian is to be Orthodox. Uh, or to be Bosnian is to be Muslim. And now you can see why there's such a conflict over there. And that's what was happening uh, with the Artemis cult. And so what they were doing, the church was challenging this dominant belief system in the city. Now notice they weren't doing it by being sacrilegious or by blaspheming. Uh, sacrilegious means taking action that, was, uh, that would have been inappropriate, you know, like going and pulling down the statue of Artemis would have been considered sacrilegious. They didn't do that. Uh, or blaspheming. They weren't going out in the streets and saying, Artemis is an idiot. You know, anybody that worships Artemis is an idiot. You know, that kind of thing. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that take that sacrilegious and blasphemous approach today in many cultures of the world, uh, which is dangerous, and it hardens people against the gospel. It hardens people against the gospel. And so the church didn't do that. And we see that uh, with the commotion that arises a little bit later on. But they are challenging the dominant belief system of the city. Uh, now today in London, the dominant belief system, we might call it uh, cultural secularism. secularism. Uh, but uh, we have values like fairness. Fairness is a big value. You know, fairness is not necessarily a biblical value. At least as many people understand it today. Um, another value of our cultural secularism is that you can be any faith you want to be as long as it's private. Uh, another value is uh, a mild form of socialism, that the government should provide for us, the government should look out for us, and if we don't have what we need, it's the government's fault. Um, we have a, a laissez-faire approach to sexuality, 
whatever you do in your bedroom is okay. Doesn't really matter. Now, these are all values of the dominant cultural system in London today. There's many more. But the church is a living challenge to these values. And when more and more people uh, accept the values of the kingdom of God, many of these values are in contradiction to the values of the kingdom of God. And so they were disrupting that dominant belief system, replacing it with a kingdom value system. And there was clear evidence that it was working. We could see this. We could see the evidence of it. We can see how the church saw its disruptive influence. Many people were becoming Christians. I mean, that was disruptive. You can't have a disruptive influence anywhere unless people are coming to faith. Almost impossible. Doesn't necessarily take a lot of people, but you've got to have people coming to faith. Many people were experiencing healings and miracles. Deliverance, healing, those kinds of things. So we know that it was working. We know that they were being disruptive. There were many... Now, we like those first two, right? But many people became angry with Christians and further entrenched in their sinful ways. Now, it's very popular today to say Christians are judgmental when actually, in some cases, it's true. But probably in the majority of cases, it's not true. Then why would you say it? You say it because you don't want to change. You say it because you know you're in sin, but you don't want to deal with your sin with the Lord. You want to continue in your sin because you like your sin. And so it's easy to say Christians are judgmental. Christians are homophobic. Christians are Islamophobic. Christians are... COVID phobic. I, I don't know. You put up whatever phobic you want to because any kind of label, labeling is a form of anger. It's an attempt to control. It's a content, a, an attempt to dominate. And so there's all this labeling going on. There's this anger and things that was happening in Ephesus. It certainly happens anywhere globally that the church becomes disruptive. People become angry with the church. They become angry with Christians. And they become further entrenched in their ways. Especially those who refuse to come to Jesus. And you can know that the Christians were disruptive. Because the Christians experienced violence and bullying. Mob violence and bullying. Especially in the court of public opinion. You see this today in, in China. Where they tear down church buildings. Why would you tear down a church building? Because... You believe the church is disrupting your society. You do that. But in the West, it happens in the same way. Uh, except people don't tear down buildings, they tear down people using vehicles like Twitter and Facebook and many other social media things to attack Christians. And you can see this all the time on Twitter. It takes on a form of mob violence. I mean, you look in Ephesus, things turned against the Christians very, very quickly. Uh, the people were acting completely irrationally. A lot of people had no idea what was going on, but they were screaming uh, at the Christians, even though they didn't know what they were being accused of. Uh, thankfully, in that context, the Christians received the benefit of the legal system and the social order prevailed, but it doesn't always happen that way. 
So we know that they were being disruptive because we could see the churning happen in society. And today it's the same way. Today it's the same way. I think God is calling the church to be his agent of disruption, even today in London society, even in our world, because he has a heart to see thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the disruption. Now, in order for this to happen, we need to be praying, begging God for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit in total surrender to him all together as a congregation. You can do this on your own. I'm doing this on my own virtually every single day. But we need to pray as a congregation. God, pour out your spirit. Fill me. Fill us. That we can be disruptive. Not that we can be blessed, but that we can be disruptive. We also need to start praying more for miracles so that people will know Jesus is real. I have several people long-term sick that I am praying for a mighty miracle in their life. Uh, And I'm going to keep praying because I want that breakthrough to come. I want to see incredible miracles, not just somebody have a hangnail healed, but I want to see people healed of Alzheimer's. I want to see people healed of cancer. Uh, I want to see people healed of blindness. And these things are within the realm of possibility, but we got to pray for it. We can't be complacent about it. We need to seek the Lord for this. Our prayer in all of this is that the word of the Lord would continue to increase in London and prevail. We want the kingdom of God to prevail mightily so that the church might become God's agent of disruption again. And I hope that you will join me in praying and seeking and going after the Lord until the Lord answers this prayer in our lives in this day. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, we honor you, and we thank you that you love us so, so very much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a vision of who we can be together as the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to keep praying, to keep going, to keep seeking. Lord, I don't know why you've delayed sometimes in answering these prayers because these are prayers of faith that come from the cry of our heart. We'd say, how long, O Lord, how long? But we pray and we long for that day when these prayers are answered and your kingdom is revealed in power yet again and all of London is disrupted by the church of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, bringing the kingdom of God in power wherever we are, in the workplace, in our homes, in the shops, on the streets, all to the glory and honor of Jesus. We pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well...